The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks this morning that you have indeed sent hope into the world. You are good and kind to do that. We were at odds with you, enemies of yours, not deserving of your kindness and your mercy, but you have acted nonetheless to give us hope. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would move through your Scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit here in our midst that you would move so as to open the eyes of our hearts and let us see that hope. We here gather this morning, Father, you know, some of us, most of us probably know you and are your children, and some are not. Do the same work in both of our hearts to illumine them and show us this great hope your Son, Jesus, and what it is in particular that you sent him to do. Illumine our minds. Show us this. Call us to him. Restore us. Renew us. Fix the relationship between us, I pray. Would you do that this morning, Father? For the glory of your Son and for the good of all of us, for the good of your people here, we would be renewed in our, our, our vigor of this, of this relationship we have with you and that we pursue, that we would be renewed in that and encouraged in it. And those here, Lord, who don't know you, I pray that some this morning would begin a relationship, with, that it would start today. Do that work by the power of your Spirit through your Word opened up. That is my hope and my prayer this morning. Father, lift up the name of Christ. And it is in His name that I pray. Amen. When I was younger, I got into an accident on a four-wheeler. And I came home very carefully carrying my left arm. And it felt just fine as long as I didn't turn it, twist it, try to grip anything, try to carry anything, or move it very quickly. Other than that, it was just great. And I had a really big day the next day. Some important things going on that I just really couldn't miss. And so I really wanted this thing to be okay. And so I sat down on the couch and kept it as still as I possibly could and watched some TV, hoping that it would all be okay and fine. And then my mom came in and ruined everything. (laughs) She took one look at me. She asked a few questions. She poked around on my arm. And I probably pleaded for Tylenol, but by dinner time I had a cast, which was the right thing, of course. I, I wanted to deal with the pain, and I wanted it to be all okay so that I could make it through and go to tomorrow's events and then on to the next several weeks and just carry on with the things I was about. And I wanted just the, the pain to go away and for it to function. But she obviously knew that the pain is not the problem. It's the brokenness beneath the surface that is the problem, and it just causes the pain. You can't treat a broken arm with Tylenol. That's obvious in that case. Any adult, it's obvious. 
But what's obvious in that case is something that we all consistently struggle with in life. We spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to avoid the core issues and deal with the surface. The things we can see, the the here and the now, the the stuff that, that hurts And if we can deal with that with somehow avoiding dealing with the core, the the root of it, that's great. Because really what I want is the pain to go away. So we spend a lot of life wanting things and pursuing them, trying to alleviate the symptoms. We want injustice to end. We want economic hard times to pass. We want wars to cease. We want marriages to work, kids to cooperate, abuse to end hunger and poverty to be alleviated. We want parents that get along. We want friends at school. We want a world that makes sense. A life that has happiness and joy and peace and rest and meaning and direction, purpose. We want all of those things, and we pursue them in in our friends and in our family members, from our leaders, from God. And once God gets into the situation, it takes on a little interesting twist. We, we say to God, God, here's what, here's what I want. I want these problems to go away. I want my life to work out. I want rest. I want hope. Can you just make that happen? And mercifully, God refuses to treat just the pain, but he treats the brokenness that causes the pain. Far be it from him to treat a broken life with Tylenol. He goes at the core, the brokenness in us, the break we have suffered from God that leaves us as broken people and causes untold pain in life. He goes at the brokenness to fix it. That's mercy from him. That's what we're going to consider this morning in the Gospel of Luke. Approaching Christmas, and it's four days away. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a text that comes right out of the the Christmas narrative, but perhaps one that's not so familiar because it's not very commonly looked at. We're going to look at this text, and my hope is is that this morning, God will use it. He'll use it to open up our minds, our hearts, to illumine us, to show us what the core issue is. And do one of two things, depending on where you stand with Him right now. He'll either cause you to reach out and to embrace His work on the inside of you to to restore relationship, or if you already are a Christian, that He'll cause in you a renewed passion and thanksgiving and trust in his work on the inside of you. Move us beyond just looking at the superficial to the core and either embrace his work in the core or be thankful and trusted anew. It's my hope this morning that he'll use this passage, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read Luke 1 verses 67 to 79. But before I do that, I want to explain a little bit about the context of this passage. Luke 1, 67, the very first verse says, And his father, Zechariah, well, who is that? Well, the beginning of Luke 1 sets this whole thing up. Zechariah is a priest. 
one of what is estimated at that time to be about 18,000 priests in, in all of Israel. And they lived scattered throughout the whole land. But they would rotate by large groups. They would rotate through Jerusalem to perform the various duties at the temple, and then, then they'd rotate out and go home, and another group would come in. But when these larger groups came to the city, there were a few special tasks, if you will, that not everybody could do, only one or two people could do. And so they then within the group drew lots to see who could get to do some of these special things, like, for instance, offering the incense of worship in the temple itself. There's an altar of incense in the temple just outside of the Holy of Holies. The temple had various divisions, and the innermost place was the place where the presence of God dwelt, and you couldn't go in there. But right in front of that, was a thing called the altar of incense where you would offer incense and worship. And that was such a privilege to be able to do that that no priest ever did it more than once in his life. They rotated through in the groups and then within the groups. And by the time we meet Zechariah, he's an old man. He's never been able to do it. And now it's his turn. He has the chance to go into the temple, actually, and offer incense on the altar of incense. This would have been the pinnacle of his career to come right up to the presence of God. So he goes in, he's doing it, and at that moment, an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a child, a son, which is remarkable because verse 7 has already told us that Elizabeth is barren and that they two, the two are well advanced in years and they have no children. But he says, Zechariah, Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And this is not going to be an ordinary child. We get a little hint of that in the name. The name John itself translated into Hebrew, roughly means, roughly, the grace of the Lord. So the angel says to him, here's what you're going to name him. Though no one else in your family is named John, so this is going to be highly unusual that you would pick a name out of the blue. I'm going to give you a name out of the blue, which means the grace of the Lord. Grace to you in giving you a son, surely, but more than that, it's grace of the Lord to the people. Because John has a mission. And then he goes on to elaborate in chapter 1 on what that is. We're going to save that for our text this morning. Zechariah has a hard time believing all this. And it's a mild chastisement for his doubt. He's made unable to speak until after the child's born. And so for about nine months or so, he can't talk. And he walks out of the temple, unable to talk. And he goes home to Elizabeth, unable to talk. But she becomes pregnant. Nine months later, John the Baptist is born. And at that... Zechariah's tongue is loosed, and verse 67, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying. So this is God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Zechariah. This is God's very word coming out of his mouth. Zechariah says, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's Zechariah's prophecy as he looks at his newborn son, John. And it's largely a celebration. Blessed be the Lord God for what you've done. He's, he's celebrating it. I'm going to take that celebration and apply it to us this morning. So I'm going to turn it a little bit. It's not just going to be a praise to God. It's going to have meaning for us here. So here's the main point that I'm taking out of Zechariah's celebratory prophecy. Here's the main point for this morning. God has visited us to bring you to himself. Will you grasp hold of him today? God has visited us, come and visited himself for a purpose, not just to say hello, but for a purpose to reconnect us, reconnect you, to bring you to himself. And so in response to that, the question to you has to be, will you grab hold of him? Will you grasp him today? For the first time or again. It's my main point this morning. I'm going to make two observations from the text along those lines. Here's the first one. Let me state it and then walk you through the text to show how I get it. Here's the first observation. In mercy, God has kept his promise to grant us unhindered access to himself. That's long. I'm going to say it again. In mercy, God has kept his promise to grant us unhindered access to himself. Access that is not blocked, is not constrained, not forbidden, but is unhindered and open constantly. He promised to make that kind of access for people to himself. He promised that, and he kept it. Let's look for this in the text. This passage here we have it's structured somewhat like many of the trails that we have around here in the mountains. You start in a parking lot or just along the side of the road. You start there and you go up, 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 back and forth, switching back towards some sort of a destination. Maybe it's an overlook or maybe it's a mountain lake. And oftentimes, once you get there, you basically you turn around and you come right back the same way, back down to the parking lot. And so the return trip is very similar to the outgoing trip, though you're seeing things from a slightly different angle, so they're a little different. But it's basically step one and the last step are pretty similar. Step two and the second to last step, pretty similar. And so on, till you reach that mountain lake, let's say. That kind of structure occurs very often in the Bible. There are many passages like that. And the point in them, the, the, the reason for it, is that it's de designed to focus us in on that destination. That center thing is being displayed, being shown. He, look at this. Here's what you're going for. That structure is pretty common in the Bible, and it occurs in our text. Let's look for it. Start in verse 68. 
Remember, it's not going to be exactly identical, but there are going to be very strong similarities. Verse 68 has the idea of God visiting. And if you look at verse 78, the sunshine from on high visits. Similar concept, something from on high visiting. Back up to verse 77, salvation to his people is the concept which sounds a lot like the end of verse 68 and 69. Redeemed his people. His people. Raise up a horn of salvation. Same basic idea. And verse 70 is about a message from the prophets. And verse 76 is about a prophet with a message. Back up again. Verse 74, delivered from the hand of our enemies. Verse 71, saved from our enemies from the hand of those who hate us. Deliverance from the enemies on both sides. And what you're left with now in the middle, verses 72 and 73, and the end of 72 and the very beginning of 73 are the same thing. The covenant, the oath sworn to our father Abraham. That's the middle, the lake, if you will. This passage is focusing us in on him remembering the covenant. That is the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That's the focal point of Zechariah's prophecy. Well, what, what is that covenant that he swore to Abraham? You can read about it in the book of Genesis. Many of us are probably familiar with it. But when we look at it in Genesis, sometimes we tend to miss the forest for the trees and we get focused in on things like the land that he promised and certain amount of descendants that he promised and who's he talking to and what does it mean. We kind of look at all those details. Zechariah tells us what the covenant's about. Remember, he's speaking, prophesying, filled with the Holy Spirit. What he says is true. Here's what Zechariah says. He says that the heart of this covenant is something very precious. Look closely at verse 73 the oath that he swore to grant us that we, once delivered from our enemies, if you were to diagram this sentence, that once delivered from our enemies is a, is a subordinate clause. You could put parentheses around it and kind of set it off to the side for a minute. So do that. Move that off to the side. We'll come back to it. But to see the main point, set aside the delivered from the enemies part, here's the thrust of the covenant. To grant that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's the covenant, the oath sworn to our father Abraham. That's a mouthful. God's covenant promise to Abraham was that he would make it so that Abraham and his children could serve God. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. And where all this started off was with him in the temple performing this very rare service to God. The whole temple structure has been serving to make this point with Zechariah in there a, a special, a once-in-a-lifetime event. He can almost come into the presence of God. Almost. Most of the rest of Israel can't even come that far. But he can almost come. He can bring this incense in once in his life, right up to the curtain behind which God dwells. It's a little bit like if you were to think about going to the White House and you walk up to the door of the Oval Office and the President of the United States is in there. 
and you can look at the closed door. Most people can't, but you can. You can come up and look at the closed door, and the Marine guard standing there says, look all you want, but make it quick, and if you touch the door, you're a dead man. For real. So you can almost come there, but fundamentally, that's unwelcoming. That door is not the way into the presence of the president. It's a barrier to keep you out. And you best stay out. Right? Right? That's, that's, what it's all, that's what the whole thing is saying. You can almost come here, but you cannot come here. That's the temple structure in Zechariah's day. Here's God in the middle of the middle of the middle of the middle of the temple, in the middle of the city, in the middle of the country, and you can almost come there. If you're Gentile, if you're Gentile, you can come to the city, you can come into the outer courts. If you're Jewish, you can come a little further in. If you're a priest, sometimes you can come a little further in. And if you're a special priest, you can come into the temple. And if you're the high priest, one day a year you can come into the presence of God, but you better bring the right sacrifice or you're a dead man. For real. It's fundamentally saying, don't come here. But come, but don't. Come, don't. And Zechariah is saying, verse 75, that God promised to Abraham that he would one day make it so that I'm going to grant it, I'm going to give it so that my people can serve me, all of them can serve me not just from a distance, before me, the text says, can serve before me, not just once a year, all their days. That's right in the text. He's granted something that you can come and you can stand in holiness and in righteousness before Him. Before you couldn't because you weren't holy and you weren't righteous, so you can't come in here. But now you can. He's going to grant that. That's what Zechariah is saying the heart of the covenant is about. It is a precious promise. God's going to make it so that you can come and have unhindered access to Him. The brokenness that says don't, God told Abraham, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to bring you in. One day in the future. That is a great and precious promise because that is our core and fundamental need. That brokenness with God is the cause of all the strife and all the pain and all the hurt in this world. All of it. I'm not saying that when you hit your, hit your finger with a hammer that that only happened because of sin. But what I'm saying is that pain and brokenness and fallenness, of which that is perhaps a piece, happens because of sin and its destruction of our personal lives and therefore our corporate lives. Everything that is wrong is rooted in the fact that we have broken from God. That's the core problem. And God said that is the problem in mercy text says mercy twice. In mercy, I'm going to deal with that problem. 
How? That's where the phrase that we set off to the side in the parenthesis comes back in. I'm going to grant that, having delivered you from your enemies. Well, let's bring that back here to the middle now, and let's talk about having delivered you from our enemies. That's a significant condition. Because what it's saying is that I can't do that unless I deliver you from your enemies. And much of the rest of the passage before this is, is about delivering from the enemies, from the hands of those who hate us. How is he going to do that? In Zechariah's day, surely some of those enemies would have been political. Surely would have, some of them would have been military. But if you think about verse 74, anything that blocks the giving of the gift is an enemy that God has to deal with. How is he going to do that? He has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David so as to be able to show the mercy that he promised to the fathers. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. When you hear horn, don't think trumpet. That's not what he's talking about. Think a ram's horn, the horn of an animal that it would use for fighting. This is a very common symbol back in that day. A horn that symbolizes a mighty warrior, especially a king. When it says that God has raised up a horn from the house of David, he's saying, I have raised up a mighty warrior king in the line of David, like I promised through my prophets. And his reign will be vast and his power is unlimited. A mighty warrior. And I've raised up, you've got a picture in your mind, this is military language. You picture a king riding onto a battlefield. The sun glistening off of his armor. And he catches the sight of the crown on his head. And everybody knows, there's the king, our champion. And as he draws his sword, his scabbard rings. And he raises it high and everyone can see the deliverance has finally come. in a cattle trough in Bethlehem. What's with that? How is that a mighty horn? Any one of the people, most of the animals, can kill that thing. A mighty horn? Who will deliver us from our, our enemies? Save us from everything that stands in the way of this gift that God wants to give to us? How is that a mighty horn? We're going to come to that in just a minute. But the point here at the beginning, this first observation, is that God promised to do that, and he did it. Zechariah is saying, he has raised him up. No longer he will, he has. The virgin already is with child. He will be born in a couple of months. He already has arrived. Blessed be the God of our fathers. He has kept his promise. We're going to talk about how in just a minute. But he has kept his promise to fix this core brokenness, to bring us back to himself. Christian, this is good news. This is the best news you could ever hear. Zechariah is celebrating, and so should you be. You have access 
to God unhindered. He will never turn you away. He will never shut the door in your face and say, do not come here. His posture toward you now is always, come, 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 come. I will give you mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Come. He's thrown open the door. You are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Every single one of us, if you're a believer, every single one of us has access to stand before God, holy and righteous to serve Him forever, which is what you were made for. It's what your heart was made for. You serve something in life. You were made to serve a good and holy and righteous and loving, merciful and gracious and wise and beautiful God. And He has made that reality for you. That should matter day in and day out. He has set the bone. The pain will pass. He's fixed the problem. Unfortunately, we tend to kind of skip over all that and, and want the pain dealt with right now. He will. He will make all things new. He will. If He's given you Christ, will He not also along with Him give you all things? Romans 8 says so. He will. But what this calls for us, if you're a Christian, what it calls you to do is to realize, along with Zechariah, praise be God, blessed be God, because he has acted to bring me into his presence, and I stand there now in grace, never to be thrown out. Blessed be God. But if you're not a Christian, realize something here. This is all for the people of God, and you're not one yet. But you can be. Do you want to be? Do you, do you want to deal with the core brokenness? Or do you just want to deal with the, the surface? If you want to deal with the core brokenness, you can. And you can come in. You can be reconciled, fixed, healed. That takes us to the second observation. So far, we've just been concerned with what God promised to give and the fact that he did it. And now the second observation is about how. And the second one's important because if we just were to stop at the first one, we might not be real clear on what those enemies are, those who hate us. Certainly, there's a, there's a physical, there's a tangible, a military, a, a state government aspect to that, but it goes far beyond that. Anything that would stand in the way of what God wants to give to us, that's the enemy that he's going to deal with. And that gets clarified for us here in the second observation. Here it is. In mercy, God gives relationship with himself, that thing promised. In mercy, God gives relationship with himself in the forgiveness of sins. That's the key part. In the forgiveness of sins. 
This passage is a, a prophecy from Zechariah. You'll recall he's the prophet of John the Baptist. And here now John shows up. Verse 76, Zechariah, now looking at this little newborn baby, says, you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High because you're going to go before him. You're going to go before God to prepare his ways, which is just what the angel told Zechariah in the temple back in the beginning of the chapter. He's going to go before the Holy One of Israel to make a people prepared for the Lord. And we can look back into the Old Testament, and we can look at what John said when he was older, we can look at what Jesus said about him, and the consistent theme is that John is about preparing the way, of making the way ready for this horn of salvation that's going to follow him, God come in flesh. How's he going to do that? How's he going to prepare the people? Well, it says at the end of verse 76, you go prepare his ways, 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He prepares the way by informing people the salvation that I've been talking about, it's salvation from sin. The salvation is not just in eliminating, the, let's say, the Romans or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. It's about dealing with sin and forgiving it. That's where the salvation is. And John's going to come and prepare the way by declaring that, by making that known, because we constantly overlook that. We tend to think the big problem is the pain on the surface. Actually, beneath that, and John's going to have to inform us constantly, it's about forgiveness of sins. So he says in verse 76, 77, essentially saying, listen, this several thousand year old story that dates all the way back to what he said to Abraham, continues on through what he said to the prophets about David, that whole story is not just about the forgiveness of uh, the deliverance from physical enemies. It's about dealing with sin. That's the problem. Sin prohibits what God wants to give. Sin prohibits unhindered access to Him. Why couldn't anybody come into the temple? Into the holy of holies? Because there isn't anybody holy. There isn't anybody righteous. And God cannot let that combine with His holiness. He cannot let the sin that is in us, not the sins we just commit, but the sin that is in us, the fact that we are sinners, He cannot let that come into the holy of holies, into His presence, without judging it and destroying it. That's why no one can come. The problem is sin. And so the salvation, the deliverance, comes in the forgiveness of sins. Salvation that we need is not salvation or deliverance from some occupying army, not from terrorism or economic troubles or joblessness, not from family strife, not from cancer. We need deliverance from sin. That's where salvation lies. And in tender mercy... Steadfast love, verse 78. God acts to address it. 
God will shine like the sun down upon you. You who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's all of us. We all sit here in darkness, in a world that's dark. We all sit here or stand here dying. We're all dying. And after the death comes a judgment in which we stand before God. And in our sin, he'll say, don't come here. You can't. But what he says here in this passage in verse 78, that is in tender mercy, he has made it otherwise. He's promised to shine upon us like the sun. To invite us into the light. To give light to those who sit in darkness. And to guide our feet into the path of peace. To fix everything. John preparing us to tell us all of that and to make all of that clear and it's rooted back in sin, which all begs the question, how does he deliver from sin? How is he going to save from sin? How is he going to forgive sin? That's the mighty warrior with the sword upraised lying in a manger. A mighty deliverance in meekness. John himself tells us, we could look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. John, grown up now well into preparing the way for the Lord, sees Jesus walk by and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb who will be slain to take away sin. So you have this horn approach the battlefield and raise his sword and then turn the hilt to his enemies and take a knee and flabbergasted and then in glee to their doom they strike him dead the lamb slain to take away sin crucified to take on himself the curse of God against sin God hates sin it is everything that He is not. And when it resides in us, His curse against sin rests on us. And He sent a mighty horn to deliver by stepping into our place to take the blow for us. That's how He can forgive sin. Because it's paid for somewhere other than in me paid for. So I can go into the presence of God. He can say, don't come. And I'll say, I have sufficient payment for my sin. And he'll look at the blood of Christ slain for my sin and say, good. You stand clean then. Come. He can forgive sin for all who trust him. He'll take away the sin of the world. That is for every single human being who trusts him. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas cannot be separated from Easter. The baby in a manger makes no sense unless you see the cross looming over him. He is not a mighty horn to save lying there. He is only a mighty horn to save crucified there. These two connect. He comes to go there. Easter and Christmas 
are one. God has worked a mighty salvation in sending a horn who in meekness will give himself up to death to deal with that which stands in the way of his blessing, to remove the enemies so that you can come. All of which begs a question, what are you going to do with that? All of which forces us to ask a question, the bottom line of all of this, if all you're going to do with that is say, that's interesting, then it doesn't matter at all for you. Knowing it matters not a bit. There are, are some here today, I am sure, there are some here today who perhaps have known this, perhaps just learned it, but you've never trusted it. You must. It is a, a marvelous tremendous offer of a promise that is not yours until you trust Jesus. It's all theory with no application until you trust Jesus. Which means until you say, Jesus, I need a mighty Savior, because I have sin that I see condemns me. I need a mighty Savior. You are the only one available. You are the one God has raised up. Please save me. Please take my sin. Apply your cross payment to my sin. That the barrier that keeps me away from you can be removed and I can come into your presence unhindered access with you, who the Bible says is the fullness of joy. Do that. Trust Him. Turn away from your own efforts to pay for your sin. Turn to Him. And then all of this will flow downhill right onto you and you'll find access to God that is amazing. For a lot of us here this morning, I know a lot of us here are already Christians. You've already trusted Christ. What do you do with this? Well, I think that this should serve as a correction and as an encouragement. As a correction in that we are, we are prone to, to lapse. So my hope is that at Christmas time here, you would think about a mighty horn that saves, come in a manger to go to a cross. You would think about all this, that you know. You would think about this and you would look, take a moment to examine yourself and look and say, where have I lapsed? Where have I really just been focusing on the surface pain that I want dealt with and I have not set my mind on the brokenness beneath? Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that what happens here on the surface is immaterial. All that stuff I listed earlier, the wars and difficult marriages and abuse and whatnot, that's all very real. And I'm very aware of that. And we should want all that to go away. And we should work for that. But we should also realize it's never going to happen until and only through the bottom level issue being dealt with. 
And he has. That should set our minds on something. And in that, we should see God. It's a testimony to his character. It's, it's a witness to his mercy that he has acted to not just cover over, but to deal with the root. That's goodness in him. And in that healing of the root, there is also a promise that the pain will pass. He will make all things new. It's a testimony to the character of God. And it should give us hope also. So it should correct us in our, in our thinking where we've lapsed into focusing on the, the surface and not focusing on the root. And when we focus on the root and see God's work there, it should serve as an encouragement to us. God is for you. He deals with you in steadfast mercy. That's good. That's a good thing. Your sin covered and forgiven. Which not only should cause you to, to hope in Him, but it should also enable you to deal honestly with your sin now here in this life. If you're playing with a friend at your house and he or she finds out that you just broke one of the windows in your garage and he says, oh man, I'm going to tell your dad. You say, oh, my dad already knows actually. We already worked it out. It's over. And then dad walks out and said, standing right next to the broken window and seems okay with it, takes the sting out of it. You know, that friend wants to get you, but he can't because it's okay. In a similar way, when we look at our sin and realize God my Father already knows about it and has dealt with it, it's okay, I can deal with you about my sin. And I'm not threatened by it. I don't have to cover it up. I don't have to get defensive. Oh, no, 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 you're not going to tell him. If you tell him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to whatever. I, I don't care. I'm not covering and defending. I'm not bothered or upset. I can talk about sin. And that's vital. It's vital in a body to be able to talk about my sin, not just me talk about your sin, but for me to talk about my sin. And right here is the root of that. How do I do that? I realize my sin's forgiven. I have unhindered access to God. He delights in me always. Will never be wrathful towards me. It's okay. Now I can deal with it. I can fix the window. I can pay for it, whatever I need to do. It takes a sting out of it. There should be an encouragement here to realize he's dealt with the core problem of alienation from him, of separation, of brokenness. He's your friend. He's for you. And he will one day remove all of the pain when he makes all things new. He has visited this world to bring us to Himself. Maybe that's for the first time. If you're not a Christian, come. But if you are a Christian, He's visited this world and wants you to remember that so that you'll come to Him and hold fast to Him and not seek to hide. So the question is, 
Will you grasp hold of him today? Embrace him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. Blessed be your name that you made a promise a couple thousand years ago to make it so that we could come into your presence and to serve you all of our days. You made that promise and you kept it and I bless your name for that. And I pray for each of us here in the room this morning. Would you do the particular work in our hearts that this text calls for? That this truth calls for? Would you show us your salvation in the forgiveness of sins? And would you turn some hearts to you to trust you for the first time? And I also pray, Father, would you commission your spirit here to be at work amongst my brothers and sisters who are prone to wander. Lord, I know it in myself and I know it in them. Prone to leave the God we love. Or would you take our hearts and bind them to you to show us your goodness? Or that's the work that we need to have happen in us. The core issue of relationship restored. Thank you for making it possible. Do it again today. For the glory of Christ and for the good of your people, I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.